Swearing to tell the truth, Rupert Murdoch admitted Fox lies to its viewers. The lead starts right now. Top Fox executive Rupert Murdoch under oath admitted election lies peddled on his network were simply a business decision, saying, quote, it is not red or blue, it is green. What else did Murdoch admit? Plus, when winning a battle does not end the danger, CNN treks across a booby-trapped land littered with mines in Ukraine. But first, the Supreme Court on the record, hear what the justices said about President Biden's plan to cancel billions of dollars in student loan debt and whether Biden even remotely has the authority to do so. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're starting today in the money lead and the fate of President Biden's plan to wipe out $400 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars of student loan debt now rests with the U.S. Supreme Court. Justices today heard oral arguments in two cases challenging Biden's plan. The Biden administration argued that, yeah, they have the power to forgive student loans in order to protect Americans from financial harms brought on by the COVID pandemic. Six Republican-led states and a conservative advocacy group, however, questioned Biden's authority to do so without Congress playing any role. And they also asked whether it was fair to relieve those loans when so many other Americans had already paid theirs off or did not take any loans. Here's how two of the justices reacted to arguments today. Some of the finest moments in the court's history were... uh, pushing back against presidential assertions of emergency power. You know, this is an emergency provision. There's an emergency. It's an earthquake. Congress used its voice. Congress used its voice in enacting this piece of legislation. We start our coverage with CNN's Jessica Schneider, who has the big moments from the Supreme Court oral arguments today. Cancel student debt now! Big stakes for more than 40 million student loan borrowers as the Supreme Court decides whether a program eliminating up to $20,000 in debt per borrower can go into effect. To provide a measure of loan forgiveness to ensure that this unprecedented pandemic does not leave borrowers worse off in relation to their student loans. The Biden administration is defending their student loan forgiveness program, arguing that it is necessary in the wake of the COVID pandemic. But the conservative justices repeatedly zeroed in on the program's $400 billion plus price tag to question whether the president, by way of his education secretary, has the power to enact this kind of relief. I think most casual observers would say if you're going to give up that much amount of money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act on. The Solicitor General responded that federal law allows for the Education Secretary to waive or modify loan obligations in the wake of an emergency, and the ongoing financial effects of the pandemic justifies the administration stepping in. Without this critical relief for debtors, we are going to have a wave of default across the country with all of the negative consequences that has for borrowers. I think it is precisely the type of context where the executive should be able to implement those emergency powers. The Supreme Court has repeatedly struck down programs implemented by the Biden administration under COVID, including the eviction moratorium and the testing or vaccine mandate for large employers. This student debt program uses the pandemic to justify for giving $10,000 in federal loans for people making under $125,000 or $20,000 in loans for those with Pell Grants. About 20 million borrowers could see their remaining balances entirely wiped out. But Justice Neil Gorsuch asked whether that undermines basic fairness. What I think they argue that is missing 
is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, people who um, don't ha have planned their lives around not seeking loans, um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place, and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. So a lot is on the line for millions of borrowers. Now, if the Supreme Court upholds this program, debt cancellation could come pretty quickly because the Biden administration has already approved 16 million applications. But it does appear, Jake, from the questioning of this conservative-led court that they could strike down this program. And if they do, that will really end the hopes of debt relief, at least for now, for millions of Americans. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider outside the court. Thank you. Crowds of people gathered outside the court today during oral arguments, many of them calling on the Supreme Court to uphold President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. They say the debt relief would provide them with a new sense of financial security. Renee Marsh talked to some of these protesters and brings us their stories. Student loan borrowers and advocates rallied outside the nation's highest court as justices heard oral arguments on the legality of President Biden's student loan debt relief program. I'm kind of broke. I don't really got it on me like that. And honestly, the movement for this really supports people that are in the same financial situation like, as me. Some traveled hundreds of miles to be at the court for a case that could change the trajectory of their lives. On board my flight, headed to D.C. for the People's Rally for student debt cancellation. 25-year-old Sabrina Calazans traveled from New York to rally outside the court. My family would be eligible for up to $50,000 of student loan cancellation. So as a whole family, that's huge. Calazans graduated from college in 2019. She has nearly $30,000 in student loan debt. With payments currently paused, she can now contribute to household costs for the home she shares with her parents. Massachusetts Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley's personal student loan story has guided her support for tackling the problem. I ultimately defaulted on those loans and I did pay off those loans, but it took me 20 plus years to do so. Federal data shows the student debt crisis is multi-generational, spanning from recent grads to grandparents. Data shows 2.6 million borrowers over the age of 62. 72-year-old Vietnam vet Cecil Hamilton is one of them. I never got the, uh, the amount paid off. In 1977, Hamilton says he took out a loan for an associate's degree for $5,250. Nearly five decades later, he still owes roughly the same amount. I thought I would have a good job and a home and all the things that people like to have and then uh, enter retirement on a good note, but instead I'm, I'm back in the hole again. So. Well, Ham Hamilton, that veteran that you saw in the piece there, he says despite the government garnishing 15 percent of his Social Security disability payments for the loan that he defaulted on, interest and fees made it virtually impossible for him to put a dent in the principal. And another thing that he said that stuck with me, he says that he hopes that he won't die in debt. He hopes to qualify for credit to buy a home, something he's wanted to do for the past more than 40 years. And that, Jake, really speaks to the long-lasting financial impact that this Supreme Court decision could have on these borrowers. All right, Renee Marsh, thank you so much. White House officials closely monitored the Supreme Court's oral arguments today. One source telling CNN 
that the Biden administration believes it will ultimately win the case, but the conservative justices on the court seemed unlikely to uphold Biden's plan. CNN's Phil Mattingly joins us now from the White House. Phil, what was the mood there as oral arguments played out today? What did, what did they, the White House people think was going on? You know, Jake, despite the skepticism we very clearly heard from conservative justices, White House officials, at least publicly, are maintaining the posture that they believe they will win the case when it's all said and done. Now, they believe that the effort that they put in to wipe away uh, $10,000 of student loan debt was well within the authority that they're pursuing here. But the biggest uh, issue that they believe will work in their favor is the issue of standing. They don't believe uh, that the Two plaintiffs involved in this case can show that they were financially harmed, and they believe there are also wider repercussions should the Supreme Court decide to rule that there is standing here that will play a factor in how this all plays out. Now, they are very cognizant of the fact of just how critical this decision will be uh, and just how significant uh, it will be for what the president has laid out going forward, potentially what will uh, what it will mean for executive actions uh, beyond this, depending on how they rule. However, at this point in time, they maintain that they believe they will end up winning in the end, Jake. And as you know, uh, critics say this is just a, a ploy for Biden to try to get people to vote for him, especially young people. Yeah, look, the White House officials were involved in intensive, months-long deliberations on this are not naive to the fact that politics were certainly involved. And they certainly played a critical role. And to some degree, they probably had an impact when you look at exit polling and how Democrats did in the midterm elections. Younger voters breaking heavily toward Democrats. But more than anything else, when you talk to White House officials who were involved in this decision, uh, where the president was skeptical about the fairness argument, ensuring that it was tailored and targeted towards lower-income and middle-income individuals, was the idea that they They believed it was a campaign promise that the president needed to deliver on, and they believe it will have real economic impact in a positive manner for a segment of the population that typically falls behind or is not given perhaps the opportunities that others are. Politics, though, Jake, very clearly having a role will be most interesting to see, depending on how this plays out. If this ends up getting struck down as how they play this going forward, the president has been unequivocal in recent months as these challenges started moving up the court systems, uh, that they viewed this as a very clear challenge, not just on the policy merits or on the legal merits, but on the political merits, Jake. Mm. All right. Phil Manningly, thanks so much. Coming up, the lies told on Fox admitted by Fox chair Rupert Murdoch. Plus, hear how the network chairman often gave the upper hand to the chief election liar himself, Donald Trump, but first on Dangerous Ground. The up-close look at booby-trapped land that Russians left behind in one town as Ukrainian forces kicked them out. And later, the battle stories from an American World War II veteran soon to be portrayed in a TV show brought to you by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Topping our world lead today, Russian President Vladimir Putin said there were, quote, losses in our ranks, unquote, during a speech to Russia's security service. It was an an unusual admission about the cost of his brutal war on Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian officials claim the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut will soon be in their hands. One Ukrainian soldier tells CNN the street fight there is, quote, much worse than officially reported. As Volodymyr Zelensky's troops attempt to cling to that symbolic city in areas that Ukraine has liberated from the Russians. There is still dangerous work to be done. CNN's Alex Marquardt takes us now near the front lines where so many unexploded mines litter the ground. It could take literally decades to clear them all. The hulking armored mine clearer lurches into an open field. 
over 40 tons, it spews exhaust, its tracks struggling across the muddy ground. Following close behind, the mine clearance team, called Sappers, they advance deliberately on the hunt for deadly explosives. This is delicate work. This was a Russian position, Russian trenches. And now these guys are working through here carefully, methodically, looking for mines, for booby traps, and even Ukrainian ordnance that was fired at the Russians who were here. Last September, a Ukrainian counteroffensive pushed the Russians out of these trenches. Now, Colonel Maxim Melnik's team has been charged with clearing any explosives. They have left many traps behind, and many of our brothers, our sappers, have died, Melnik says. Russia doesn't obey international conventions. They put mines on top of mines, leave booby traps, and use banned mines. Russian and Ukrainian mines are scattered throughout the Eastern Front, making Ukraine one of the biggest minefields in the world. Rockets and other explosives can often fail to detonate when they land, too, all of it posing immense danger to civilians. The sappers of Ukraine's DSNS emergency service, like Edward Harris-Semenko, who's a father of a 10-year-old daughter, are keenly aware of the danger. It's dangerous for everybody, he says. I wouldn't say we take more risks than others. Everybody is taking risks now. Harris Semenko was demining before the war started. Seeing what Russia has done to his country infuriates him. They are just animals, he says. There's no other way to describe them. finds and carries an unexploded rocket-propelled grenade to the side. Working day after day all across this country, D-miners know how much they still have left to do. After the war, the soldiers get to go home, but your work will continue for years. We will keep working for decades, Colonel Melnik says. This will go on for decades. Alex Marquardt, CNN in eastern Ukraine. And our thanks to Alex Marquardt for that report. Coming up, the lies told on Fox, willingly, knowingly, and what happened to the network hosts who tried to tell the truth. The revelations coming out in a new lawsuit next. In our politics lead, the power of the courtroom oath, Fox News Chief Rupert Murdoch exposing his own network's blatant dishonesty during a deposition. According to a new court filing, Murdoch admitted that some of his top hosts were pushing election lies to millions of viewer, viewers. Why were those lies allowed to continue? According to Murdoch's own words, money, the fear of losing viewers, the fear of isolating Donald Trump, the fear of antagonizing advertisers. Murdoch at one point saying, I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight. Hindsight, of course, is 2020. Less clear are any regrets Murdoch may or might, may not have now about, at least according to the deposition, overtly pushing Republican candidates, sharing confidential Biden campaign ad info with White House staffer Jared Kushner, firing Fox employees or disciplining them, for telling the truth about the election, and any number of other serious journalistic transgressions. CNN's Brian Todd dives into the bombshell revelations in Dominion Voting Systems' lawsuit against the network. 
from the chairman of Fox Corporation, jarring admissions of how far his news network was willing to go to carry Donald Trump's water after the 2020 election. In a deposition, Rupert Murdoch acknowledged that some Fox News hosts promoted the falsehood that the election was stolen from Trump. Quote, some of our commentators were endorsing it, Murdoch said, of Trump's election lies. I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight. Murdoch denied that Fox News as a whole endorsed the lies, instead pinning it on hosts Sean Hannity, Janine Pirro, Maria Bartiromo, and now former Fox host Lou Dobbs. This is the culmination of what has been a over a four-year effort to overthrow this president. Murdoch's deposition made public in a legal filing from Dominion Voting Systems' $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox. That same deposition revealed Murdoch called Trump's election lies, quote, bullshit and damaging in an email. And still... At no point did he decide, we've got to pull them off the air or we've got to prevent this from happening. And he essentially acknowledged at a certain point that... This was a strategy to win back voters who had been alienated by Fox News's call and projection on election night of Arizona for Joe Biden. There was an enormous panic going on inside Fox News. These people were freaked out about the possibility that their most extreme viewers or even their core viewers would move to Newsmax. Newsmax, a smaller conservative channel that constantly pushed election denial, is believed by media analysts to have siphoned off viewers from Fox after Fox called Arizona for Joe Biden. And at that time, Fox kept allowing election deniers like MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell on their air. Actual machine, new, new machine election fraud. I retweeted it, and they took my Twitter down. In the new deposition, Murdoch said it was, quote, wrong for host Tucker Carlson to allow Lindell to make election fraud claims on his show. So why did Murdoch allow it? Quote, the man is on every night, pays us a lot of money, Murdoch said. At first you think it's comic, and then you get bored and irritated. Rupert Murdoch thought it was more important to keep the profit machine going than to interrupt uh, its flow. Fox says it shouldn't be held liable for the assertions of hosts and guests on its air. Says the Dominion lawsuit is a violation of their First Amendment rights and an attempt to, quote, publicly smear Fox for covering Trump's election claims. According to documents in the lawsuit, the day before the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Rupert Murdoch and Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott discussed the idea of having Fox primetime stars Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram go on the air again on the eve of the attack and make it clear to viewers that Joe Biden had won the election. According to the documents, Suzanne Scott told Murdoch that they needed to be careful about, quote, pissing off the viewers. So none of those anchors ever made a statement like that. Jake. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Brian Todd, thanks so much. Uh, with us now to discuss Lonnie Chen, a policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Also Naveen Nayak, president of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. And Lonnie, not only did Fox hosts consistently peddle these election lies or have guests who peddled them, but we learned that Fox executives silenced or punished employees who were trying to tell the truth. Shep Smith, called over the top by Rupert Murdoch. He's no longer at Fox. Correspondent Leland Vittert, Branded as smug for his tone that was not a, quote, celebration of the president, also no longer at Fox. And the Washington bureau chief who called uh, Arizona for Trump, Bill Salmon, uh, was fired to send a, quote, big message with Trump people. Um, I understand that there's a need for conservative journalism in the sense that there are other networks that are liberal. Um, but 
can Fox really call itself a, a journalistic enterprise in the wake of these revelations? Well, the, the three journalists that you identified there obviously are, are strong journalists and they found their, their, their way and their place to, to other networks. But listen, I think what this demonstrates, Jake, is the dead-endism of Donald Trump. And I think the challenge that he continues to pose, not just to Fox, but to the broader conservative media universe. And, and then, you know, there is a big question in my mind of how Trump gets covered now in 2024. That's the interesting question to me. Yes, these revelations about 2020 are significant. Clearly, they're going to be litigated over the next couple months. But the big question for me is, what happens with the coverage of Trump, who is, by the way, one of the few declared candidates for 2024? What does that look like going forward? And are networks like Fox going to be more wary of covering everything that, that uh, Donald Trump says going forward? Naveen, uh, Murdoch uh, also, according to this deposition, gave Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and a senior advisor, gave him confidential information about then-presidential candidate Joe Biden's TV ads, according to the filing, along with uh, debate strategy. I mean, giving that information about TV ads alone, any other network, that person, I mean, there would be an apology, there would be uh, recriminations. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. No, it absolutely is. And I, I think a lot of people have sort of felt this way. Maybe it was mostly on the left. I, I think what these depositions sort of reveal is that all Americans should really view uh, Fox News as nothing but a propaganda machine. I mean, they, they really have underscored that they're there to help one political party, help one political candidate. And I, I'd push back a little bit on Lonnie's comments that this wasn't about Donald Trump. They were after viewers. They were willing to lie and spew things they knew were lies and give a platform to liars in order to try and attract viewers. Those same viewers are there still. That is the MAGA world. That is the same argument that a, a lot of people are using to attract MAGA voters, which is let's say whatever we want to say. And, you know, it's one thing for a politician to do that. It's really a concerning thing in our politics and in our democracy when the news media, which we all rely on to have some sort of common sense of reality. Of course, there's a liberal perspective and a conservative perspective, but they should all be within the bounds of reality. And I think that's what this depositions kind of reveal is that Fox is not operating in reality anymore. It is just a propaganda machine. Lonnie, do you want to respond to that? I mean, look, I think a lot of this was about Donald Trump and about the lies that that he engaged in and spewed and the universe around him engaged and spewed after the 2020 election. But uh, again, I mean, I think the fundamental question going forward is, yeah, there's a liberal perspective. There's a conservative perspective. That might be the case. But there are deep fundamental questions, I think, for all uh, all media organizations about what do you do and what do you say when you have this person who's an active candidate for the presidency again, who potentially might not only engage in rehashing of what happened in 2020, but go beyond that and engage in potentially new activity or new mistruths or new lies. I think that's really the question. And what do we get out of that? What are the lessons we learn? That to me is the far more impactful thing for our democracy going forward. And Lon, um, Lonnie, another revelation from the filing is that Murdoch asked the Fox News CEO to have Sean Hannity say, quote, something supportive about Republican Senator Lindsey Graham ahead of the 2020 election. Murdoch wrote, quote, we cannot lose the Senate if at all possible, unquote. We, the operative word there, we, we cannot lose the Senate. Um, That makes it sound as though Rupert Murdoch thinks that Fox News is an arm of the Republican Party. Well, and I think that that is a is a viewpoint that may be relatively broadly held. I think if you were to survey uh, a number of people who consume television news. But listen, I, I, again, the, the challenge here is 
there is a perspective on different networks that's presented in different ways, and people have to understand that filter before they watch it. Now, is it a problem if it's not made overt and made clear? Yeah, I think it's a problem. But fundamentally, this notion that different networks have different points of view and different perspectives, to me, is not particularly news. Well, I guess, but go ahead, Naveen. Well, I was going to say that I, no one would disagree with that. I, I think people do want different perspectives. That's what makes a democracy and sort of this environment healthy. There's got to be some expectations, though, of being honest, of trying to tell the truth, of trying to actually convey reality. And in this case, we can't forget that the consequences of this were January 6th. You don't get the events of January 6th without months of lies about the election, about fraud, that Fox played a very active and now we know intentional role in promoting. Yeah, and I think that's the question, not sharing a conservative perspective, but sharing a perspective that they knew was false. I mean, the lies that they were telling. Naveen, in in the wake of the election, Murdoch wrote in an email to the New York Post editor describing election lies that Trump was pushing as, quote, bullshit and damaging, unquote. And yet his airwaves were, were full of the same damaging bullshit. His words. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the reality here is that there has to be some sort of accountability for this. It's one thing for an individual to spread lies on Facebook. We are, we do have a First Amendment right for that. And that is a totally different thing. We now have a news network that is reaching tens of millions of people and knowingly lying. They're What's really interesting, too, about their own, uh, you know, uh, argument in this case, they're not disputing that they're lying. They're trying to argue that the lies were newsworthy. And I think that just underscores um, how far they've strayed from actually trying to be a news network. And and Lonnie, in in the midst of this lawsuit, we should note House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to defend his decision to publicly release January 6th security footage to one of the hosts of uh, a Fox News show. You know, it's not like he's not he's not releasing it to everybody in the news media. He's releasing it to this channel that has now admitted, although not this particular host that I'm talking about, but has now admitted uh, knowingly lying. Yeah. I mean, let's hope that that footage is more broadly available to all networks, including this one. Uh, I, I think it's important that if the footage is made available to one, it's made available to all. Now, we can talk about the the notion of exclusivity and one network getting it first and how unusual that might be. But the reality is that this is footage. Look, if one network's going to have it, all networks should have it. And I think that that's a standard that all politicians should abide by. Lonnie Chen, uh, Naveen Nayak, thank you to both of you. Appreciate it. Comedian Bill Maher has strong opinions about the current Republican Party, also the conservative, the current Democratic Party, and also tribal politics overall. We touched on that and so much more for CNN Primetime, which is an interview airing tonight here on CNN. Here's a little clip. Talk about the Democrats um, being so hemmed in by identity politics. The counter argument would be it's always been identity politics. It's just always been white people. So people like you and me didn't notice. And now it's right. just an effort at inclusion, which I'm sure theoretically you support. Yeah, I, I support it in fact. Um, but I mean, the, you know, the Democrats sometimes can take it too far. Or, you know, I would I would categorize liberal as different than woke. You know, woke, which started out as a good thing, alert to injustice, who could be against that. But it became sort of an eye roll because they love diversity except of ideas. And that's not really where we should be. I mean, they have a a trail of very bad ideas, I I would think, in, in wokeness. like How do you define wokeness? Because I hear people use the term all the time, and it means something different to to everybody. Well, again, I think it's this collection of ideas that uh, are not building on liberalism, but very often undoing it. 
I mean, five years ago, I don't, Abraham Lincoln was not a controversial figure among liberals. We liked him. <laughs> now they take his name off schools and tear down his statues. Really? Lincoln isn't good enough for you? My one-on-one with Bill Maher airs tonight on CNN primetime, 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, Israel's plans for settlements in the occupied West Bank as a recent spike in violence claims the life of a young Israeli-American man. Stay with us. And turning to our world lead now, Israel's foreign minister told reporters today that the Israeli government definitely will continue building settlements in the occupied West Bank, even though... They are becoming a focus of increasing violence between Israeli settlers and Palestinians. As CNN's Kadas Gold reports, a young man with dual U.S.-Israeli citizenship is among the latest victims in this cycle of bloodshed. Elon Ganellis was in the wrong place at the wrong time, his friends say. The 27-year-old Connecticut native, the latest victim in the uptick of violence between Israelis and Palestinians. Don't feel like going home. Moved to Israel several years ago, studied Hebrew at a kibbutz before joining the Israeli military. One of his former teachers telling CNN he was the kind of guy you'd want your daughter to date. But in 2018, after he completed his service with the Israeli army, he moved back to the U.S. to attend Columbia University, where he studied sustainability. Hi guys, my name is Elon. I want to talk about how we measure sustainability. Returning recently to visit for a friend's wedding. But as he drove along a popular route that cuts through the occupied West Bank, often used by tourists on their way to the Dead Sea, the Israel Defense Forces said attackers shot at several cars. Ganellis was struck in the upper body, medics said, the attackers fleeing to nearby Palestinian villages, burning their cars in the process. Echoing a similar attack that killed two Israeli brothers on Sunday near the Palestinian town of Hawara, south of Nablus, followed by revenge attacks by dozens of Israeli settlers that killed at least one Palestinian man and left dozens of homes and cars burned. The U.S. government expressing alarm over the recent events. We condemn the horrific killing of two Israeli brothers near Nablus and the killing today of an Israeli near Jericho, who we understand was also an American citizen. We express our deepest condolences to all of the victims' families and their loved ones. Now a massive manhunt underway for all the attackers. And the Israeli military is sending in extra battalions, placing checkpoints in the nearby Palestinian city of Jericho. As the region remains on edge, worried about what will come next. And Jake, on those alarming settler attacks against Palestinians on Sunday, just tonight the major general in charge of the Israeli military operations in the West Bank essentially acknowledging in an interview that they weren't expecting or truly prepared for the level of violence they saw. The major general calling what the settlers did a pogrom, of course the term that you used yesterday. That is such a loaded term for an Israeli a senior officer in the military to use. But that goes to show you the seriousness, the severity of what's been happening here. All right, CNN, Chandas Gold in Jerusalem. Thank you so much for that report. Coming up next, the bravery of a World War II veteran and his family who felt his story needs to be shared with the world. Stay with us. In today's pop culture lead, the hidden, unknown story of a World War II American hero finally coming to light. Frank Murphy flew with the bomb squadron known as the Bloody Hundredth. He wrote about his war stories in a personal memoir that he really only shared with a few dozen people. Among the people, CNN's Chloe Melaz, his granddaughter. And now Chloe and her family are publishing her grandfather's story 
with a real publisher in a brand new book out today called Luck of the Draw. His story, Frank Murphy's story, so compelling. It's one of those stories that's going to be included in a brand new TV series later this year. Rack them up and knock them down. It is one of the most anticipated TV shows ever. More than 20 years after producers Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks teamed up to make Band of Brothers. The only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. They've teamed up again, this time to make Masters of the Air, a multi-part series on Apple TV Plus about the Allied air war against the Nazis based on Donald Miller's best-selling 2006 nonfiction book. Will we get this job done? Yes, One of the young war heroes depicted in the show is Frank Murphy the grandfather of CNN's Chloe Malas. Grandpa would just tell us stories about World War II. Murphy was one of millions of young American men who enlisted in the war after the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor, hundreds of thousands of them taking to the skies over Nazi-occupied Europe. Murphy became a navigator for the 8th Air Force's 100th Bomb Group, known as the Bloody Hundredth. He loved airplanes, everything about airplanes. He would look up in the sky, he could identify any airplane. The news that actor Jonas Moore will be portraying Grandpa is delighting Chloe's family. He would be uh, flabbergasted. Yeah, he, he would never think that he would be a character in this miniseries. But I think he would love it. Oh, yeah, he, he was such a humble person. It, he, he, he would marvel that anybody would be interested in his story. But given what so many from the greatest generation went through, it may not be all that surprising, especially for Frank Murphy, who flew 21 harrowing missions before his B-17 was shot down over Germany. He was captured and remained a prisoner of war for the next 18 months. His 93-year-old widow says his parents feared he was dead. His father started calling the White House every day, demanding that they tell him, where his son was. Murphy would spend more than a year living in repulsive conditions at Stalag Luft III prison camp in Poland. Eventually liberated by General Patton's army, Murphy returned home to Atlanta, where he graduated from Emory on the GI Bill, became a lawyer, and had four kids. Murphy seldom spoke about his experiences with his kids or Chloe or others in his family. He only began to share the stories with others toward the end of his life. In 2001, Murphy self-published a few dozen copies of a memoir of his war experiences for family and friends. When I read the book, um, I just remember having the conversations with him. I couldn't believe it was real. It's, uh, he, none of that he had ever spoken of. Frank Murphy, grandpa, died in 2006. Chloe, her mother, and grandmother have since been on a mission of their own to have an actual publisher bring his memoir, The Luck of the Draw, to a much wider audience. And today, officially, they achieved that. With an intro by Chloe and a blurb from Tom Hanks. Quote, In the pursuit of authenticity, of accurate history, and undeniable courage, no words matter more than I was there. Read Luck of the Draw and the Life of Frank Murphy and ponder this. How did those boys do such things? He said that all along. It's not about me. It's about all the people I served with. If he thought he told his story well for his fellow soldiers and veterans, that, I think that would be the greatest uh, joy for him. And I think that's what's going to happen. The book, again, is Luck of the Draw. I have a copy right here. It's available right now. Chloe Malas joins us right now. Chloe, let's also say hi to your mom and grandma, because I know they're watching right yes. now. And it's really remarkable, because as Tom Hanks notes, these were boys. These were, these were, they were late teens, early 20s. First of all, I mean, 
you did an amazing job on this piece. So I just first want to thank you from my whole family for, for doing that with such care. You're a great guy, Jake. Well, okay. um, they were young guys and they had never seen combat before. And what I find so interesting is that these were the first time that we were doing daylight bombing raids. And so we thought that we could better accurately hit our targets. And the jury is still out on that. And these guys climbed up into those B-17s and those airplanes day after day and they faced evil. And my grandfather, you know, just falling short of the 25 missions required before he could go home, being shot down, and two of the men in his crew dying that day. And my grandfather writes in the book, Jake, that you either had a bullet with your name on it or you didn't. You were at the wrong place at the wrong time. It all came down to the luck of the draw. It was as simple as that. Yeah. And I don't know if I told you this, but my grandfather's brother was a tail gunner in World War II and he was shot down and he was killed. Uh, over World War II. These men were fighting for the freedom of the world. Um, Actor Jonas Moore is going to portray your grandfather in this miniseries, which my son and I have been waiting for for years. Um, Did he meet with your family at all so that he could more accurately uh, be Frank Murphy? Oh, well, let me tell you, he narrates the audio book and he does a mean Southern accent, this British guy. So I'm so excited for him. So we have messaged back and forth a little bit, but he has done a Zoom with my mom, with my grandma. And that was really amazing that Tom Hanks's production company arranged that. And everyone is just so excited. We don't know when the series is coming out, but I can tell you I'm going to be with some of the families behind the series tonight. And I mean, we've all been waiting for this for 10 years. We are so excited that we're just, it feels close and we're all just really excited. And we're here on the day of the publication. So we don't have to, you don't have to wait for the TV show because Luck of the Draw is out now. Frank Murphy, what a lovely way to honor your grandfather. Um, And and goodbye uh, to to, uh, the grandma too. Ann Murphy, is that her name? Bye bye. Thank you so much for watching. We hope you and all the bubbies down there in Florida are having a good time uh, (laughs) watching this. Chloe Malas, thank you so much. Good luck. With the book. Coming up next, the hearing purposely set to grab attention tonight. The topic, the tense relationship right now between the U.S. and the Chinese government. In a bipartisan interview, we're going to talk to the Republican and Democrat leading that hearing with this new special committee on China. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, voters head to the polls today in America's third largest city. Why the winds of change have the incumbent mayor in the Windy City fighting for her political life. Plus, a handful of homeless veterans get keys to brand new apartments. But this only partly fulfills a promise made more than six years ago. And hundreds of veterans are still waiting for their homes. And leading this hour, a new message to the Chinese government from the Biden administration in a direct and specific warning to Beijing, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, if the Chinese government sends weapons or military equipment to Russia, it would cause serious problems for China around the world. China can't have it both ways when it comes to, um, when it comes to the Russian aggression in Ukraine. It can't be putting forward peace proposals on the one hand, while actually feeding the flames of the fire that Russia has started. Uh, with the other hand. This warning comes just hours before a Republican-led committee holds a hearing on the Chinese Communist Party's threat to America. Let's start with CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. And Manu, tonight will be the first primetime hearing that any Republican-led committee has held since Republicans took over the House majority in January. What are Republicans telling you about why this is such a top priority? 
Yeah, this is one of the rare bipartisan initiatives in a very polarized institution, the U.S. House. But Kevin McCarthy has indicated to me and others that this is a big priority of his to make sure that both sides are on the same page when it comes to the threat of China. And that is the same approach that the leaders of the committee, Chairman Mike Gallagher, on the Republican side, the Democrat, Raja Krishnamurthy, both are trying to pursue this on a bipartisan basis going forward. Now, Gallagher ind indicated to me that this will be an overall scene-setting hearing to try to make clear about the threat from China poses not just abroad but also here in the United States and we expect to hear from some key witnesses some people who worked in the Trump administration Matt Pottinger who was a Trump expert under a China expert under Donald Trump uh, was expected to discuss about the ideological aspect the political nature of the Chinese Communist Party that'll be part of his testimony tonight HR McMaster the former national security advisor under Donald Trump going into detail about the military aspect the military component of the Chinese government. And also, we expect to hear from Tong Yi, who was in Tiananmen Square, someone who was essentially jailed in a labor camp for two and a half years, detailing the brutal and some oppressive conditions uh, that that, uh, that had happened uh, during the time over there. Uh, this all coming, Jake, as this committee plans to push ahead on a series of other hearings going forward. We don't expect today's hearing to really focus on the questions about uh, whether the COVID-19 was originated in the lab in Wuhan, Gallagher indicating to me that's probably going to be a focus of a separate hearing or a separate issue. But this, they plan to dig deeper on specific subjects after this overall scene-setting hearing and then issue a series of reports in the months and weeks ahead about what actions the U.S. could take, what Congress can take to try to confront this threat here at home. Jay. And, Mano, there was also a hearing today on oversight of American dollars going to Ukraine uh, we heard top-ranking Democrat on the committee, Adam Smith, say sending F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine is not a wise use of resources, even though Ukraine really wants that. Republican Matt Gates tried to enter Chinese propaganda into the congressional record. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Gates seemed to be surprised that this was Chinese propaganda. It seemed to be an accident on his part, citing the Global Times from China, which is known as the Chinese propaganda outlet. He was asking Colin Call, who's a policy official at the Defense Department, about a report from this uh, this, new, this organization. And the report cited U.S. giving weapons to the far-right Azov Battalion in Ukraine. Ukraine. Gates asked Hall whether or not he was aware that this actually occurred in the, the U.S. supplied these weapons. Call didn't seem to recognize this or was aware of it. Asked him for some information. Gates cited this Global uh, Times, Times report from China. Call said, I don't agree with Chinese propaganda. Gates then said, well, I agree with that assessment. But, Jake, this all coming as you're right. Adam Smith, the top Democrat on the committee, making clear he does not believe supplying F-16 fighter jets to, to Ukraine is a wide use of resources, but not all Democrats and Republicans agree with that, pushing back on that assessment. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Now to China, where top Communist Party officials rolled out the red carpet for Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, a fellow autocrat and key ally to Russian President Vladimir Putin, after Beijing solidified its no-limits partnership with Moscow last week and floated a 12-point peace plan for the war in Ukraine. Let's get right to CNN's Ivan Watson, who's in Hong Kong for us. And Ivan, just checking, is China still claiming to be a neutral party in the Russia-Ukraine war? 
Oh, it sure is. And it, it's a tough uh, needle to thread when you consider that uh, China did declare a friendship with no limits with Vladimir Putin just before he launched his invasion. And to date, Beijing refuses to acknowledge Russia's invasion nor its annexation of Ukrainian territory over the course of the last year. That said, I think Ukraine would prefer this professed neutrality to China overtly supporting Russia in this destructive war. And that's where we turn to uh, Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, and his visit to Beijing. Uh, Let's set some context here. Belarus is very much a junior partner in an alliance with Russia. It's got a population of less than 10 million people. It's dwarfed economically uh, by Russia. Uh, but and, and it's also very diplomatically isolated because Belarus allowed Russian troops to invade Ukraine from its own territory. So now you've got this leader traveling to Beijing. He's hoping for expanded ties, which Xi Jinping has promised him. He's promised to upgrade to an all-weather comprehensive strategic partnership. Trade has grown by some 30 percent over the course of the last year between China uh, and Belarus. And, and the Belarusian president is promising all these documents that are going to be signed. Uh, we'll see where this goes. Lukashenko, though, has made it clear Belarusian troops are not going to engage directly in the war with Ukraine. He seems to recognize that that is a bridge too far for him, too destructive for his own regime so far. Jake? All right, Ivan Watson in Hong Kong, thanks so much. Joining us now for a bipartisan interview, the top members of the House Select Committee on the strategic competition between the United States and China, Wisconsin Republican Chairman Mike Gallagher and Illinois Democrat and ranking member Raja Krishnamurthy. Thanks to both of you. Uh, for doing this. We appreciate it. It certainly says a lot that you're appearing in a bipartisan way. We don't get that a lot. Um, Chairman Gallagher, let me start with you. You've said that unity is America's greatest strength against China. So how are you and your fellow committee members going to keep tonight's hearing laser focused on China and going forward also and not into partisan politics? Well, I think it starts with the tone that Raja and I set in terms of how we work together. The good news is we've worked productively together for six years on a variety of issues. I think we've grown to respect each other and we recognize that we don't have to agree on everything. But when it comes to the threat we face from the Chinese Communist Party, I think we see it clearly and we want to identify that bipartisan center of gravity where we can push back against transnational repression from the CCP. And so I'm cautiously optimistic that we can do that on the committee. If for no other reason... Then if you look at the list of members that we have on both sides, Speaker McCarthy appointed very serious, sober members, not bomb throwers. And as well, Minority Leader Jeffries appointed some very uh, talented Democrats that I've worked well with on the armed services and intel committees. And Congressman Krishnamoorthy, China's fraying ties with the West have been on full display recently. Obviously, the China spy balloon incident, U.S. warnings that China is considering arming Putin's army, uh, the escalating standoffs about Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party possibly spying on Chinese dissidents here in the United States, competition over semiconductor manufacturing, concerns over, concerns over data privacy and TikTok, not to mention renewed questions over COVID's origins. That's just some of the issues here. Um, what's first on your agenda and, and why? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. There's so many issues. And if you talk to Mike or my constituents, uh, a lot of them have their own concerns about each of those issues. But, you know, one of the issues that we're probably going to talk about tonight uh, is the economic issues and the trade issues that have ended up hollowing out the manufacturers, ma- manufacturing sectors 
in the heartland, whether it's Wisconsin or Illinois or other places, because of unfair trade practices, because of industrial espionage, because of forced technology transfer that many of our small and other businesses uh, must engage in in order to do business in the People's Republic of China. So I think that's going to be top of mind as well. And Congressman Gallagher, Chairman Gallagher, one of the big issues, uh, and I don't know how the United States can address it, is that there are so many dollars in China that organizations like the NBA and the film industry, they don't seem to care about the cultural genocide of Uyghurs or the oppression of the people in Tibet or Hong Kong or Taiwan. They just want those dollars. How do you convince them to change their mind? Yeah, it's the same reason uh, why John Dillinger robbed banks, because that's where the money is. So I think we have to appeal not only to people's patriotism, but start to put in place certain sensible legislative guardrails that at a minimum make sure that we, i.e. U.S. taxpayers, U.S. citizens, aren't unwittingly funding communist genocide or subsidizing our own destruction because we're allowing for technology transfer or American capital to invest in Chinese defense companies. Where this gets very complicated is because there's a concept in China of civil military fusion. So at times it's very difficult to identify the opaque lines between you know, a shipping company in China and the PLA Navy. And I would submit to you that the concept of a private company in China is tenuous at best and may not even exist. So I believe we can put in place a framework for sensible, selective economic decoupling. And that's something we're going to work together on on the select committee on the CCP. And, and that, what, that issue that you just talked about, whether or not there can even be a private company in China, given the fact that it's an oppressive China, uh, communist government, uh, that comes in play when it comes to TikTok. Uh, and Congressman Krishnamoorthy, on Sunday, you said you do not think there will be an outright ban on TikTok in the United States this year. Uh, but just yesterday, the White House directed all federal agencies to ban TikTok on all federal devices within the next month. Clearly, the U.S. government doesn't want it on its devices. Canada is taking serious steps to get rid of it. Why not issue a ban uh, on TikTok for every device in the U.S.? Well, I think that what we're saying is... Um, we don't want it to be under the control of an adversarial regime. So, for instance, um, if there were a forced sale of TikTok USA to some other uh, company, uh, for instance, an American company, uh, I think that people would be much more comfortable because at the end of the day, you know, folks are obviously already exercised about social media, certainly in my household. Uh, we're not super happy about this. But to have user data and then algorithms uh, and content ultimately controlled by the Chinese Communist Party is a bridge too far. And I think that is the issue that we have to confront uh, with regard to TikTok and ByteDance. And uh, Chairman Gallagher, you've talked about decoupling, you just did a minute ago, decoupling China's economy with the U.S. economy. How, how does that even work? What does it look like in, pro in practice? We get so many goods uh, from China uh, and we sell uh, so much intellectual property uh, and product to China as well. Yeah, well, I think it's critical to say, at least I'm not advocating for a complete decoupling. I don't have a problem with Wisconsin farmers selling soybeans to China. I don't think we're going to spend money onshoring textiles from China anytime soon. But when it comes to key technology or critical goods, think advanced pharmaceutical ingredients. We simply don't want to be dependent on the largesse of the Chinese Communist Party when it comes to access to life-saving drugs. So that's an area where we've got to find a way to onshore, nearshore, friendshore, whatever the term of the day we're using. When it comes to rare earths, when it comes to energetics, the things that are in our weapon systems, I think we can take some steps 
to reclaim our economic independence, but it's not going to be a total decoupling. And as I alluded to before, I want to make sure that major asset managers and university endowments, as well as state and local pension funds, aren't subsidizing genocide in China or PLA modernization. And, and Congressman uh, Krishnamoorthy, uh, I read a, a piece in, uh, I think, Politico, criticizing Democrats in general, not you specifically, and certainly there have been Democrats oh, who have been hawkish on this. Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker Pelosi, has been hawkish on China for decades, but generally your party's not really been out there in the House. Why not? Well, I think that the it's a nuanced conversation, or uh, it should be, because we want to make sure that uh, at the same time that we uh, make our differences known with the Chinese Communist Party, that we set aside the people of China or people of Chinese origin or Asian Americans um, because we don't want to in any way encourage the stereotyping or um, discrimination or tropism that often infects our conversations uh, with regard to the People's Republic of China. And certainly in the last four years, let's say, there's been a rise of hate crimes toward Asian Americans and um, we don't want to contribute to that. So. It's very clear that on this committee, um, I think Mike and I agree, our quarrel is not with the people of China or Chinese origin people. Um, we need to stand up to the threats or challenges posed by the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, and nobody is more a victim of the Chinese Communist Party than the Chinese people. Wisconsin uh, Republican Chairman Mike Gallagher, Illinois Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy, thanks to both of you. Hope uh, you have success with this new committee, and I hope you guys come on uh, a lot to talk about it. Very important issue. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. Coming up, new information about the toxic chemicals released at the East Palestine train derailment that has researchers concerned about long-term health risks for residents, plus key court documents just unsealed in the murders of four Idaho college students, what police took from the suspect's home. Stay with us. In our politics lead, one day after taking control of Disney's special district, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expanding his conservative kingdom by adding conservative allies to run a small liberal arts college in the Sunshine State. Students and faculty at the new College of Florida today are protesting the move. CNN's Leila Santiago is in Sarasota, Florida. Leila, how exactly is DeSantis taking over this college and why? Well, Jake, this is what he he himself has called the anti-woke agenda, and it's certainly something that was at the center of the protest that we saw here today, just before the Board of Trustees meeting that actually just wrapped up. So let's back up. Let's talk about the timeline here of exactly how we got to where we were. Back in January, Governor Ron DeSantis appointed six conservative allies to the Board of Trustees, really shifting uh, the power and, and, and having more of a conservative view here. Even his allies, as well as liberals here, have called this a conservative conservative takeover. They were quick to make some pretty big moves. They got rid of the president and then uh, they put in the former speaker of the House as well as the former education commissioner of Republican to be the interim president and to go along with even more big moves that uh, that have come about since this shift. Even just today, the board voted to eliminate the diversity, equity and inclusion office here. So you have many in this community, particularly the LGBTQ community, who say, look, this is a small school, 700 students to be exact, known to be pretty progressive in a place where many come to feel safe, again, especially that LGBTQ community. And now they're protesting what they see as a conservative takeover. Listen. Listen. 
All right, so I think we have a little bit of an issue with uh, getting that interview that I did earlier with the, uh, with some of the folks here, but let me kind of walk you through what they told me. They basically said that, that what is happening here, they see as not just an attack on New College of Florida, but a kind of a broader attack on education and higher education. They fear that what they see here uh, is what could happen across the country, given uh, that Governor Ron DeSantis has really um, said that this is a, a big part of his platform, his agenda, and is pretty widely accepted as a potential uh, GOP presidential candidate. Now, for their part, when I've spoken to the conservatives, actually just finished talking to the interim president, they see this as actually making this more inclusive so that they feel that uh, even conservatives can find a place here. But 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 either way, you know, what, 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 what is very clear is that there is a change to what is a very small progressive community that fears what could come next, Jake. All right, Leila Santiago in Sarasota, Florida for us. Thank you so much. Also in our politics lead today, polls are open in Chicago and the winds of change there could toss out the city's mayor for the first time in 40 years. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot faces eight challenges challengers in the race. She might not even survive the first round of voting today in her bid for a second term. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Chicago. And Omar, in 2019, Mayor Lightfoot was an incredibly popular figure. What happened that she's now fighting for her political life? Well, Jake, to put it simply, we're on the other side of what she's described as a once-in-a-lifetime set of challenges, from the peak of a pandemic to increases in gun violence that we saw here, but also in other places across the country, economics impacted as well. And so this vote, or this these people headed to the, uh, to the polls, it's really a referendum on how she presided over some of those challenges. And we've got nine t- candidates in total. You have to get 50% of the vote to, uh, to win this election. We're likely not going to see that. So we're really focus on who the top two will be, because those top two will advance to a runoff. Take a listen to two voters we spoke to a little bit earlier today about what issues they feel are important here. Equity as a city, this is a city that has disinvested in some neighborhoods for decades, and it's really important to keep the momentum that's been going for a little while to have better investment throughout the city so everybody feels like they're a part of the success of the city. Violence, and especially gun violence, has become, you know, just endemic. It's considerably worse than it ought to be. And the dynamic with that last voter is important because he told me that he previously voted for Lightfoot in 2019, but this time around has changed his mind. So we talked about the nine uh, candidates. We've really got four top contenders. Paul Vallis is a former CEO of schools here in Chicago and in Philadelphia. He's been endorsed by the Chicago Police Union, really focusing his campaign on public safety. We've got Brandon Johnson, a Cook County commissioner who's been endorsed by the Teachers Union. Uh, Jesus Chuy Garcia, who actually made it to the runoff in 2015 against Rahm Emanuel before losing and is now a U.S. congressman. And so far today, we've heard from election officials, the turnout's been a little sluggish in person, but that's likely the balance out to a surge in early voting that we've seen, particularly by mail. But while we count the votes today after polls close and into the next few days, potentially weeks as those mail-in ballots come in, 
Mayor Lori Lightfoot is fighting for her political life and is really at risk of being the first mayor in over 30 years not to be reelected. Though I should note, there's only been two mayors over the past uh, over 20 years, basically between Daly and, and Rahm Emanuel. All right, Omar Jimenez in Chicago. Thank you so much. With us now to discuss Catherine Lucy, White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Uh, Catherine, turning back to Governor DeSantis, um, how unusual is it for a governor to change the mission of a school in this way? I mean, this really is an extension of the education policies we've seen from Governor DeSantis, right? He's really leaned into these, this kind of uh, oversight of education, these, this kind of culture war that we've seen. And one of the things that we've reported on that's really interesting is it's creating a lot of confusion and anxiety among educators across the state. Uh, you know, a lot of teachers saying they don't know what to teach, how to teach it. They're cutting material from lessons, changing how they approach certain subjects because they're worried about running afoul of the law. So it's created a lot of confusion and concern um, with a lot of people around the state. And Tia, today's um, rally at the New College of Florida also follows the introduction of a bill in the Florida House that seems to mirror Governor DeSantis's ideas for overhauling higher education. Would It would essentially put board of trustee members in charge of faculty hiring. It would defund diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI programs, And it would eliminate majors or minors related to critical race theory or gender studies. Um, How consequential is this and how do you view it? So it's very consequential and it shows the consequences, consequences of elections. Governor DeSantis is has a second term. He believes he has a mandate. There is a Republican supermajority in the Florida legislature. And it's clear that Governor DeSantis wants to put his mark on public education in Florida from what we consider K through 20, uh, essentially, you know, not just public education, but it's public colleges and universities, including its graduate schools. So I think Governor DeSantis is knows that what he's doing is unique, but that's kind of the whole point of it. And the fact that they're starting out by overhauling what is arguably the most progressive of Florida's public universities is also by design. So I think all of this is part of his bigger plan as he kind of dips his toe into running for president, he wants to be able to speak to Christian conservatives and the hard right to say, yes, I agree with you. Education is too woke um, to use terminology that I think he would use. And they want to inject uh, a type of public education again, both at the K-12 and the higher education level, that reflects more conservative values and, quite frankly, Christian fundamentalist values. Um, And that's what we're seeing play out in Florida. Yeah, I mean, he probably thinks he has a mandate because he won re-election with almost 60 percent of the vote, winning uh, some Democratic-leaning areas of the state, winning the Latino vote, and on and on. Uh, Catherine, Governor DeSantis is out promoting his new book today. Uh, He defended his actions on taking control, the state taking control of Disney's special district. Um, Take a listen. Some of these Republicans acting like that if you take away their special governance status, that somehow that's not free market. That is insane to be saying that. Uh, Having the business have its own government is not a free market. That is massive, massive subsidies. I mean, it kind of has a point. I don't know why Disney had that special district to begin with. 
Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, certainly Disney had this these special special rules and privileges. Um, this is a very high public, high profile fight that the governor has waged with Disney going back to last year over, um, uh, to go back to the previous topic, over education policy. Um, and he apparently goes into a lot of detail in this in the book about his conflicts with the Disney CEO, about their private conversations. And it really highlights, you know, his effort to wage these kind of cultural fights, cast himself as a cultural warrior. You know, as we know that you know he's a potential presidential candidate. And, and Tia, do you think I mean, this all has to do with that legislation um, that stopped the teaching of any sec- anything having to do with sexuality or gender-related issues, K through third grade? Um, and uh, the Disney people came out against that. The corporation came out against it, and that's when this happened. Do you think he would have done the same thing with the corporation with taking away their special district if that fight hadn't happened, Tia? Absolutely not. And the 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 fact of the matter is, for decades, Florida lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, not only continue to protect protect Disney's right to essentially self-govern itself through this special taxing district setup, but they also reap the benefits of it. They held fundraisers at Disney, and they, you know, were Disney shells out a lot of money, you know, lobbying and campaign contributions, again, to lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. It's only when Disney decided to stand up to Ron DeSantis and Republican lawmakers on this particular issue is when they decided to punish Disney in the kind of the most extreme way, which is kind of taking away some of these special privileges. And I think you're right, Jake, a lot of people are gonna look and say, well, should a corporation have been given so much power by Florida lawmakers? That's a valid complaint. One, again, that's been raised years and years. But until recently, Florida lawmakers on both sides of the aisle were willing to protect the status quo. Only when this issue came up did that become um, a game changer. All right, Tia Mitchell and Catherine Lucy, uh, good to see both of you. Thank you so much. Coming up tonight, my conversation with comedian Bill Maher as the host of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Hear what influenced his own career, his view on the state of comedy and the age of politics right now. Here's a little preview. People actually say to me now, oh, I miss the days when you used to fight with the audience. <laughs> well, maybe you do, but I don't. Yeah. You know, But I was never one of those comics who could just pretend, oh, I'm sorry, I must have made a mistake there. I'd be like, no, I didn't make a mistake. There's something wrong with that joke. Stop groaning. Get the stick out of your ass. I must have said that 20 times on my show. Um, And then when the pandemic came around, first we didn't have any audience, then we shot here. uh, And when we came back, we were allowed to have like half the audience because of social distancing. And again, they just weeded out the people who were groaning and I would say in the last three, four years, I've never had that problem again, and it is such a pleasure. My audience who comes to my show now understands me. They think like me. They, are, they have open minds. They're, they're not woke. They're generally liberal, but they can be conservative too. And we have a great time, and there's no groaning, and I love it. But look, any comic in this era, anybody in this era, can absolutely fall off the ledge at any moment. It, it just makes me laugh when people say to me, you know, you're uncancelable. Are you kidding? I could, I would, in two seconds, I could get canceled. Anybody could. My one-on-one conversation with Bill Maher airs tonight on CNN primetime at nine o'clock Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, the new fight that is unfolding about what to do with the contaminated soil and water that has already been removed from the train derailment site in Ohio. Stay with us. 
In our national lead, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency visited East Palestine, Ohio today, his third visit there since the disastrous Norfolk Southern train derailment. 38 cars derailed the night of February 3rd, including 11 tank cars carrying hazardous materials. The National Transportation Safety Board says more than 115,000 gallons of toxic vinyl chloride was at risk of exploding once the train derailed. Officials say that's why they ended up doing the controlled burn on February 6th, three weeks ago yesterday. That burn, which formed a giant black cloud over the city. Now, getting rid of the soil and water polluted by the disaster is proving to be one of the more difficult issues so far. CNN's Miguel Marquez is in East Palestine, Ohio, for us. Um, the governor is complaining of Indiana, uh, Miguel, that he didn't know some of the hazardous waste was being moved to a facility in his state. Um, what's the EPA doing there? Yeah, so this is, so Indiana, Michigan, and Texas, they've all sort of complained about the, the, the uh, soil or water being shipped from East Palestine to those states. And look, at the local level here, the state and the federal level, there's a bit of puzzlement because these are all facilities that manage this sort of waste every day, 365 days a year, some of it much worse waste. So it can show you, not only is it the, the, the waste that they are moving from the site itself, but it's also the streams that run through East Palestine as well. Uh, this one they have been treating, and you will see these sites everywhere throughout uh, the area. Uh, the EPA director saying that in the future, they will have a system in place to warn and let states know that waste from here is coming. What I do want to do is be on the same page with all of our elected officials and those who feel responsible for answering some of these questions. So you'll be talking to the governor of Indiana. He says he's heard third hand that, that this waste is coming to his state and just has questions. Not saying he's going to reject it, but has questions. Any governor, uh, any mayor that wants to have a conversation with me, uh, I welcome those conversations. We want this to be fully transparent and for folks to understand that we are experienced in this, these facilities are experienced in ex receiving this waste, and that transparency is key. One thing that is very clear here in East Palestine, there is an enormous effort to clean this mess up. The, the tracks near where the, the spill happened, you can already see them pulling up the tracks. You can see them uh, pulling the soil out from underneath those tracks. The waterways here throughout the area are being treated as well. But what people, there, there's tons of resources, federal, state, and local throughout the town. But what people want to know now is how much longer, how much longer for the initial cleanup and then the, the, and then the monitoring ahead. It's probably going to take months, if not years, to months to clean it up and probably years to monitor it. Jake? And then, uh, Miguel, beyond the cleanup, of course, there are all the health problems people in East Palestine are, are reporting they have. Uh, researchers say the high levels of chemicals being measured could theoretically pose long-term risks. Uh, if... If one, is, uh, if one is, is subject to them over a long period of time, yes. And that's why they are making such a big effort to clean this stuff up. Uh, the, the, the nausea, the rashes, the headaches, all those sort of things that people are reporting are consistent with some of the chemicals that are in the air. If they experiencing that for a long period of time, then yes, they could have uh, health effects. But that's gonna, that too is going to take a long time of study and, uh, and, and trying to figure it all out. Jake? CNN's Miguel Marquez in East Palestine, Ohio, for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, what police found inside the home where they arrested the suspect in the murders of four Idaho college students. Stay with us. 
In our national lead, new details in the developing murder case connected to last November's killings of four University of Idaho college students. CNN's Gene Casares has seen some newly unsealed court documents that reveal what police specifically seized at the home of the parents of the suspect, Brian Koberger. Gene? Well, these were just unsealed this afternoon, and we do know that the search of the family home of Brian Koberger, where he was, where he was arrested, it occurred on December 30th. Now, this document says it was 1.25 in the morning, and they asked for a nighttime warrant because of the public safety concern for the people of eastern Pennsylvania. It also says what they collected at the home. Let's show everybody that. They collected, first of all, a buccal swab, a DNA swab. They swabbed his cheek four medical-style gloves, a silver flashlight, black sweatshirt, black socks, and a pair of size 13 Nike shoes. Here's the significance here. First of all, we learned that the FBI was surveilling him, and they saw him take plastic uh, trash bags, wearing plastic gloves, depositing them in neighbors' trash cans before they arrested him. We also know that the uh, roommate saw a man all in black clothing on the night that these murders occurred, And also uh, the fact that the shoes, there was a latent footprint at the scene, according to the probable cause affidavit, and the size 13 shoe could become significant. I looked back at what they got from his apartment in Pullman, Arizona, when they searched it. They didn't take any clothes at all. They didn't take any shoes at all. But here they took clothes. They took black clothes. Another thing they requested in this search warrant were all electronic devices, but there is not a return of any type of an iPhone or a cell phone or anything that is electronic. Jake? Hmm. Gene Casares, thanks so much. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Coming up, an unfulfilled promise that is just now starting to be somewhat fulfilled. Why it took the VA more than six years to build homes for homeless veterans on land that was always meant for them. Stay with us. Time for our buried lead. That's what we call stories we feel are not getting enough attention. Today, a handful of homeless U.S. veterans got the keys to permanent homes in Los Angeles. More than six years ago, the Veterans Affairs Administration promised to house 1,200 homeless vets on hundreds of acres in Los Angeles, land that was always supposed to be used for this purpose. Instead, the land ended up being leased out for a prep school, college, athletic facilities, parking lots, and more. CNN's Nick Watt has been following the story. He visited the new homes today and pushed to find out why hundreds of other veterans are still living out on the street. One, two, three. This is progress. A beautiful new home for veterans who did not have one. Stainless steel appliances, cabinetry, full refrigerator. Full bathroom. Again, this is for one person, maybe two if they've got a partner. It's about 600 square feet. The studio is about 450 on average. The goal is that any veteran who wants to come in out of the cold, there'll be a place for him or her. Their own room. This is nicer than a lot of hotels. A lot nicer. The idea is this is a forever home. Plus all this. The whole concept is to create a healthy environment to move them forward. Right. A half step in the right direction, one veteran told me. It's great that they're opening one building but they still owe owe us over 1,000 units of housing for all these veterans. In November, we met Joshua Pettit, an unhoused Iraq war vet. Our land, our build us housing. They can send us to war, we can get these problems and you're not gonna deal with us? No, no. Are you moving in this week? And why? 
age and money. Because for that building, you've got to be, what, 62? 62, yeah. So you make too much money on your disability benefits to be allowed to move from in From the there. VA, yeah. I make too much money from the VA to live at the VA. He hopes to get a spot in another building soon. Nobody's telling us nothing, except, oh, another delay, oh, another delay, oh, not till next month. As of today, 57 veterans live here in permanent homes provided by the VA. Once, there were thousands. This land, nearly 400 acres, was gifted in the 1880s largely by one of Christine Barry's relatives. It wasn't given to anybody but veterans for a home. But over the years, veterans were moved out. The VA focused on the hospital. Land was leased for parking lots, oil drilling, UCLA's baseball field. It's upsetting. They show more um, importance on, on baseball stadiums than us. And the exclusive Brentwood School's lovely sports facilities. This land was mismanaged. Where did all that money go? For years, I believe it was stolen, parts of it. In 2016, after settling a lawsuit, the VA agreed that 1,200 units would be built for homeless vets. By the best case timeline, they should all be open by now, but just 113 are ready for move-in. Do we know when we're going to hit that 1,200? We're on track to be able to do this in 10 to 12 years. That's completely unacceptable to reach that 1,200 marker. You can go around L.A., high-rise apartments go up all the time. It does not take 10 years to build 1,200 units of housing. But the developers have to raise the money. The VA only pays for the utilities. The Department of Veterans Affairs has failed miserably, read an L.A. Times editorial in December after another lawsuit was filed demanding the VA house 3,500 homeless vets on or around this crumbling campus and obey the law and tear up the leases for the likes of Brentwood School. And you're one of the plaintiffs in that lawsuit. Yeah. Has anything happened? Nope. The VA has until Monday to respond. Told CNN, during 2022, VA provided 1,301 permanent housing placements to formerly homeless veterans in Los Angeles. Despite that progress, there is still work to do. There is. Those Brentwood school facilities are still here, and a few thousand vets are still living homeless on the streets of L.A. And people die on these streets. But today, there was real progress. The VA brass admitted that this took just too long. They also agreed that guys like Joshua Pettit on disability need to get into housing quick. They say they're working on it. Um, You know, two more buildings are supposed to open soon. They've broken ground on three more. All the federal money for the utilities is now in place. But that promise of 1,200 units, it could end up being 20 years between that promise being made and that promise being kept. Jake, you told us to stay on this story. We did, we are, and we will. Keep doing it. Keep doing it, Nick. Great stuff. Really appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. I will see you tonight, hopefully, for our interview with Bill Maher. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tonight. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.